Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Kroll-Bennett. Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. Louise Greenspan is a pediatric endocrinologist and renowned researcher based in San Francisco. She was a co-investigator in one of the largest and longest running studies following girls through puberty in North America. In 2014, she and co-author Juliana Deerdorf published a book I still refer to almost weekly, yes, seven years later, called The New Puberty. On the bio page of Louise's TED Talk is this. Louise was once told by a friend in college that she would be the next Dr. Ruth because she was so comfortable discussing taboo subjects in public. And she's come pretty darn close given what she does now. I second that. It's precisely why I've been drawn to Louise since 1997 when she was my senior resident and I was her lowly intern at the UCSF Medical Center. As a young doctor who knew basically nothing, having a guide like Louise was as invaluable as it was fun, especially at 3 a.m. And here we are, nearly a quarter of a century later, slightly different venue, but same topics. We are so glad to have you on the Puberty Podcast, Louise. Thank you so much. And I don't know how that's possible. I'm only 30. So how could that have been that long ago? It's crazy. I know, right? 
We're all only 30. We're all only 30, although our children are near, nearing our own age. So Louise, I just want to add quickly before we gain all of your incredible knowledge that when we started Dynamo Girl and I was coaching seven and eight-year-old girls in sports and noticing that they had breast buds and body odor and was surprised, one of the first places I went was your book, The New Puberty. And I read it cover to cover, and then again, cover to cover. And it is, as someone who works with girls in sports and now families around puberty, it is a kind of a Bible that is both accessible and readable. And it's also very comforting because as we'll discuss today, for so many families, as they watch their children develop earlier than they expected, they think it's because they've done something wrong. And so to me, I'm grateful to your sensible, accessible, and profoundly evidence-based book in helping me and Cara and all of the people out there guide families through the new puberty, the puberty we didn't expect um, to see in our kids. So Cara, do you want to get us started off with the questions? And Louise, we're just going to sit here wrapped listening to your knowledge and wisdom. But if Cara, if you could get us started off. It's just like 1997. I'm going to pick up where you left off, Vanessa, which is with the launch of the new puberty seven years ago. It was literally covered everywhere. Terry Gross on NPR, New York Times. I mean, if you start with Terry Gross, it's like, that's everywhere to me. Louise, can you tell us a little bit about the path to get there, the path to get to the publication of the book, including when you started focusing on pubertal development in girls and maybe a little bit of your aha moment? Yeah. So I'm a pediatric endocrinologist. So I'm a physician that works with children with hormone problems. And very early on in my career, I was approached to be part of this study, which was looking at environmental determinants of breast cancer. But because risk of breast cancer is mediated through timing of first periods. The question was, is that actually the first period that's important or is it the pubertal onset timing as in breast development that's important? So this study was aiming to look at environmental causes of pathways which may trigger early onset of breast development and maybe later breast cancer. So I got involved in that. And when we were designing the study, I was the only pediatrician at my site. I was the only pediatric endocrinologist on the nationwide site. There were three sites. And I kept on saying, guys, I know you're interested in breast cancer and environmental stuff, but really this is the biggest thing since sliced bread in my field. And when we look at these 1,200 girls for the next eight years, starting at age six to eight, this is really the big time. And everyone else is like, yeah, 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 but... And so when the studies started coming out, it was interesting because the press started focusing on asking me, and I was not the principal investigator. I was one of the like next level down investigators. I was younger. A lot of the principal investigators were male and none of them were pediatricians and none of them were endocrinologists. And I finally said to one of our media guys, why do they want me? I'm not in charge of the study. And they said, one, you're a woman, two, you're the hormone doctor, and three, you're a mom. And what's interesting is I started doing the study when I was engaged. And I actually signed a piece of paperwork the morning after I gave birth to my daughter <laughs> because they needed this paperwork. And I was like, I was at the hospital anyway, where I work. I'm like, here, fax it. I, you know, so that daughter's 16 and a half now. So that tells you how long we did this. And so the idea that my motherhood was a positive 
attribute from me then using that, not misusing it, but like that gave me extra expertise, maybe think about this differently. So as I went through the study, my daughter was about six years younger than all the girls in the study. But as we started, you know, papers are delayed. So by the time the paper came out, looking at the onset of puberty starting at age seven being, quote, normal, my daughter was approaching that age. And I started looking at her peers and there was a disconnect between my brain saying, oh, the science shows. And my heart looking at my daughter and her second grade classmates going, what the heck? So marrying those two aspects led me to realize how hard this would be. And I wanted to support families. And then we were getting more and more kids referred to the clinic, clearly. Julie Deardorff was one of the other investigators. And so she has children that are just a couple years older than me. So we were very much mentors to each other, not in the same field, but just of that professional balance of motherhood. And I started getting asked by my mom friends to talk to their daughters. And then at work, I realized so much of what I was doing was reassuring people that their kids were in the healthy, normal, and I I don't even know if that's a word we should use anymore, but physiologic development. And I could only reach the girls in my office, or I could only reach the parents of my kids' classmates. And I didn't have the time to go to every school in the Bay Area and every Girl Scout troop. So Julie and I had long been joking when our kids were little, we need to write a parenting book. And then I was approached by an agent saying, you've got a book in you. Could you please write this? And I said, only if I write this with Julie. And Julie and I then wrote the book we'd been wanting to write as mothers and scientists and physicians or therapists. So I love that narrative, Louise, partially because it mirrors for each of us on this recording our work and our parenting overlap and the challenge of having the knowledge that one thing is actually happening based on the research, but then the emotional aspect of parenting that is often disconnected, right? We know what is quote unquote true or real or the science supports it, but we still have the emotional reactions that other people who don't specialize in this area have. So I just want to back up to a very important thing you said in the middle of your comments, which is seven years old is now considered, and we should think about what words we want to use in this context. Is it normal? Is it healthy? Is it expected? Is it, you know, you, the scientists, you two can tell me what words we want to use, but that seven years old is now considered, I don't know, standard yeah, I mean, it's normal is such a cringy word in yes, medicine, correct. right? I so, agree. I agree. We were going to call... a cringy word in any context. Yes, I wanted to... We were going to use normal in the title. And, and I think there's also the normal as in statistical norm. Mm. And, but normal does not mean healthy. That's right. I'm right. putting air quotes around it. I'm realizing we're doing a bu- right. podcast. <laughs> but normal is a statistical term. Yeah. So standard, Cara, is that a fair? Or it's not surprising. Maybe not that's surprising. The, right. So it is no longer considered surprising to meet a young female who is in early puberty at age seven or eight. Is that a fair statement, Louise? Correct. Our paper that came out in 2010 was the first paper we published. Again, 1,200 girls of a diverse population in America. So Ohio, New York City, urban, and the Bay Area and San Francisco Bay Area. And at seven years of age, 23% of non-Hispanic Black girls had breast 
development. And this is just starting breast development. We're not talking about periods, but the second stage of breast development. And if people want a great non-scary depiction of that, they should look at Cara's book because I pull that out almost once a week as well. And it's a lovely picture of girls doing things in the mirror and what their breast stage is. And it's awesome because it's totally not scary. So 23% of black girls had breast development, 15% of Hispanic girls and 10% of white girls at age seven. So statistically, we consider anything more than 5% of the population as statistically, quote, normal in the bell-shaped curve, normal, using the term that way. So at seven, 23% of Black girls, 15% of Hispanic girls, and 10% of white girls. By age eight, which was previously considered the 5% cutoff, we have 43% of Black girls, 31% of Hispanic girls, and 18% of white girls. So that becomes truly, if you think of statistical norms, if it's a bell-shaped curve, right in like close to the middle of the bell-shaped curve. So we used to think eight and a half, refer to the endocrinologist if it's before that. Now we're saying, no, at seven, a bulk of these girls, a, a significant minority of these girls have breast development and what's happening. And normal does not mean healthy. And that's that we've had that issue with body mass index percentiles in America as well. Normal is not necessarily healthy, but it is statistic. Okay. So I want to make a promise for a second that we're going to cover a few things related to this, right? So one thing is we're going to talk about where, and is this the U.S.? Have we looked at this phenomenon internationally, et cetera, et cetera. The second thing I want to promise that we're going to cover is sort of the why. And that is a lot of what the new puberty does is it looks at the why. And you wrote the new puberty now, you know, almost a decade ago. And so we'll talk about the why then and maybe a little bit about the why now. And then the third thing I promise we'll cover is this idea of as a parent or a person who's involved in the raising of kids, what are you looking for to see if your child is in puberty because there are breast buds for biologic females. There are things like hair growth, which you and I talk about a lot independently and together as not a sign of puberty, which is confusing to a lot of people. And then of course, there are the boys, the biologic males who some may have breast growth, actually many have breast growth, but the more typical early puberty signs are more subtle. So I promise we'll get into all three. And Vanessa, you want to pick up the first thread? Yeah. So, I mean, the question that is comes up in response to the data that you just mentioned, Louise, and it comes up all the time in our Dynamo Girl workshops where we have families of all different racial and ethnic backgrounds is why is there a difference between Black girls or Latina girls or white girls? And is there also a difference between girls living in New York City versus girls living in rural Ohio. And around this whole conversation, I know that there is the caveat, which is we don't know sometimes. And that may be your answer to some of these questions and we're not sure. And I really appreciate that in the book, you sometimes say, we're really not sure, but here are our best Attempts. So if we could start with the differences in, in racial and ethnic backgrounds, that would be really great. Yes, yeah, so I, I, let's start there. One note I want to make is that I can't believe it's been seven years since the book came out, actually like this week, seven years. It's amazing that there hasn't been a lot of change since then. I've got some more data I can tell you about first periods, but the data of the why and the mechanisms 
We're no closer. And there ha- these studies are very hard to do, but I think it also addresses the we don't know and we're still considering the possibilities. We do have more ideas. The difference in the ethnicities is really hard to tease apart. And I now have words to describe that that we didn't have seven years ago. And it's what we teach in the medical school, social determinants of health. We have a nice abbreviation now that we teach SDOH. We use that at work. What is a social determinant of health? I think this year with the pandemic, we all have seen social determinants of health. They are, whether it's economic, whether it's parent educational, whether it's literally where you're living or now political determinants of health. And Unfortunately, in our country, those are often based on where you live and where you live in our country is often based on what color your skin is and what your ethnicity is because of longstanding racial inequities and, you know, all sorts of things. So I don't want to get into the sociopolitical issues of redlining, but basically that's the kind of thing that we're still seeing social determinants of health of. So the populations were very different, but very diverse when you looked at them overall. So San Francisco was a very diverse population. We actually had Asian girls. 10% of our population was Asian. It's the first study that looked at Asian American girls. We had data on Chinese girls in China. We have lots of data on Asian girls in Asia. This is the first study looking at girls who are mostly Chinese American. The Ohio was actually Cincinnati, and it was mostly white and black, non-Hispanic. New York was almost all black Hispanic. And we used to get into discussions about whether you're black or Hispanic and where does someone from the Dominican Republic, for example, land. But there were really smart statisticians who were able to tease this out using statistical techniques I don't know. So we were able to tease that out a little bit, but it really comes down to probably social determinants of health combined with genetic risks. So for example, in Africa, African girls are not going through puberty earlier than other girls, unless you add in, for example, in South Africa, where there's, again, social determinants of health between girls of African origin and European origin. So these ethnic differences are a combination, probably a little bit of genetics and a lot of social determinants of health. And then we can talk about what all those social determinants of health are. Can we jump into that? Because I would love to get a short list or a long list of those things. I'm imagining that at the top of that list is quality of food supply. Correct. So, and as reflected in body mass index, which is a medical way of determining obesity, it's a not a great ter- way of determining it because it just looks at your weight for your height and you could be a really muscly athlete. So Vanessa, if your girls are healthy athletes, they may have high BMIs and very low body fat. But in general, BMI is a, a way to look at that. And there's absolutely in every single study done a correlation between higher BMI and earlier onset puberty in girls and in boys, what's interesting is that the overweight boys go into puberty earlier, the obese boys don't, and we can get into why later, but in a big picture, there's definitely a perspective that higher BMI alone is related to shifts in your pubertal timing. It's probably related to the hormones that the fat secrete, but it may also be the quality of the food as Cara just mentioned, and that there may be certain things in the food supply that may be contributing to this. But BMI is probably the mediator. So maybe all roads lead to adiposity or fat because fat is an endocrine organ and fat makes estrogen. So with girls, when fat makes estrogen, it might trigger puberty. With boys, when fat makes a little estrogen, like you're overweight, 
it might trigger puberty. But if you're obese in the higher category, maybe you're making so much estrogen that it slows down puberty a little. And that's the explanation we're giving to why a couple studies now have shown that boys with very high BMIs are later bloomers and those with sort of high BMIs are earlier bloomers. But for girls, everybody, it's just a scale, the higher the BMI, the earlier the bloom. And it's an incredible phenomenon, you know, just for people who feel overwhelmed by understanding how hormones work. Testosterone and estrogen can be imagined on a seesaw in the body and they really do counterbalance one another in developing bodies. Everyone has both. They have both in different quantities. And so this concept of having a ton of estrogen on board when you are physiologically male and testosterone is supposed to be guiding the process of puberty, right? That heavy load of estrogen is essentially offsetting any surge in testosterone. And I think that's the very sort of crude description of why it works that way. The other thing I just want to make a quick plug for, and there's a lot in the press recently about this, is the idea of processed foods being calorie dense and low quality. And it's the processed foods that probably lead to a higher BMI, higher weight, a higher fat load in a body. On the medical side, we've known this for decades at this point, but for whatever reason, the message has not gotten out to the public. And heavily processed foods are both very cheap and shelf stable. They last a long time. And it's the combination of those things that makes them more common in homes where grocery budgets are tight and where families are really struggling to pay the bills. And that is a social determinant of health. And so, you know, we don't necessarily make free choices when we choose what we eat because what we choose to eat is not free. And this is a huge driver. There's a woman named Robin O'Brien, who's a food activist, really interesting woman who used to say in talks that she would give, you're either going to pay for it at the grocery store or you're going to pay for it at the hospital. And I think that's a really good way of looking at that one social determinant that we as a society need to do a better job of investing in good food quality because highly processed is bad. Absolutely. If there's two parts of the food that we've studied that has data to support this, one is fiber and one is high fructose corn syrup. So fiber intake is associated with later onset of puberty. The more fiber you eat, fruits and vegetables, the later your onset of puberty. The second thing is high fructose corn syrup. High fructose corn syrup is an inflammatory agent. So it causes inflammation in your body, specifically in the liver, but that causes something called insulin resistance, which is a, basically your body getting confused and not digesting carbohydrates as well that can lead to type two diabetes and all sorts of metabolic problems and makes you gain weight. So a lot of processed foods are low fiber and a lot of them now have high fructose corn syrup because it's a cheap way of making food sweet. And the combination of that makes food cheaper. And when we look at federal assistance programs, for example, or food banks, most of them have the shelf stable foods because it's more profitable for them to be able to feed more people that way. And what we really need is a movement to have free food pantries with fruits and vegetables. 
that whole idea of gleaning and taking the extra. And that is something that in the Bay Area is a focus and it was during the pandemic, but I think it's really hard to do in a food supply, food chain issue because those don't last a long time. And you have to then support people to relearn how to make those palatably. So a hundred years ago, that's all we knew how to cook. So your grandparents taught you how to cook that. And now a lot of us working parents may or may not have access to kitchens. I have patients right. who live five families in a house and they you know, have a microwave. What can you make in a microwave? It's harder to make broccoli in a microwave. So there's so many different issues that gets to, and it's not people's fault. And I always like to really emphasize that. Okay, but I want to ask one quick one because I think there are going to be listeners who are in the same position I am, which is my refrigerator is so boring. My pantry is so untasty. And yet my daughter entered puberty a full two years, maybe three before I ever did. Yeah. And so, you know, what is that? Right. People say to me, I, I was a clean eater. You know, I, again, the Bay Area, like what happened? And I still want to tell people it's not your fault. I think that's a really important thing. And I had a discussion yesterday with a mom about something different. And I said, it's not your fault. And she said, okay, I'll move on to the next thing I'm going to feel guilty about. I'm like, yeah, you do that. Cause there's always something. So, so as, yeah, I just want to, I just want to interject there because what this conversation, it's not my fault. What happened? What did I do wrong? Like we're placing there's a societal judgment and feeling about girls entering puberty earlier, right? That there's something wrong with it. And you, Louise, you may say to me, yes, there is something wrong with it, but there's a discomfort. There's a worry. There's a blame game about it. And it's, well, okay, it's happening. We have some theories about why it's happening or a bunch of reasons why, but is it bad? Should we be worried? Is it unhealthy? And I know, for instance, in the food context, you know, our kids all had like organic milk and organic eggs and organic chicken. And I've had people say to me like, oh, I had this month where I couldn't get organic chicken. Is that why my daughter grew breast buds at seven instead of nine or things like that? So I, I don't want to forget to get into the sort of like the cultural values around this issue and how we all react as we kind of move through these really important questions. So that's a great point. There's two responses to that. One is that there are biological changes and risks that happen the earlier you are when you get your first period. So age of first period can be associated with risk of breast cancer, heart disease, and all-cause mortality. But what's super interesting about our study and comparing us to studies going back to the 1940s is that the age of onset of first period has not changed nearly as dramatically as the age of onset of breast development. Breast development's probably starting a year to two earlier. Periods are starting three months earlier. So your tempo of puberty has gotten longer. The good news about that is that we still haven't found any downstream negative health effects from starting your breast development earlier. So I think there's the, oh, I'm worried because I heard that my girl gets her period earlier. She's at risk for breast cancer. And I think we can probably throw that out for this class of girls that's in this regular development, normal development, whatever word we want to use. Okay. So let's get rid of the medical risks of early onset breast development. I think we can say it's probably not that big a deal, but we need to follow your daughter and help her because there are major psychosocial problems 
that girls who are earlier bloomers can have. So we know that the earlier bloomers do also have the first, for example, onset of periods and puberty earlier have a higher risk of social risks. And what I mean by that is, it's not hard to imagine, the eight-year-old looks like a 10-year-old, the 10-year-old looks like a 14-year-old, that kid has older siblings, and those older siblings hang out with this kid. They start to act like an older kid, and they do older kid activities. So then you have children engaging in high-risk behavior at a much younger age, including sexual activity, drugs, alcohol. So how could you prevent that? Well, as a parent, you have all the power to prevent that. And you don't even realize how much power you have to prevent that because yes, kids listen to their peers, but 10 year olds really listen to their parents. And I remember when my daughter was about six, we went into a popular clothing store and I was trying to buy her summer clothes. She needed one tank top. We live in San Francisco. And the tank tops that they were carrying were like one shoulder, two tops, leopard print, giraffe print. And I said really loudly to her because I can't help it. Cara would know me, knows me. I can't help it. I was like, wow, honey. They're selling clothes for 14-year-olds in sizes for you. I think we have to go somewhere else. And there was a mom next to me and she just started laughing. She's like, yeah, let's go to the other store. And, uh, and the salespeople heard me. I mean, it was like one of those mortifying moments for my daughter, but I was disgusted by what these stores were selling because they were sexualizing young girls. And I think there's been a shift back. My daughter, as I said, is 16. This is now 10 years later. But as a parent, you have control about what clothes your kid wears. You have control about what shows your kids watch. Although this year with iPad freedom, that's a little change, but you can put some restrictions and you have control in who your kids hang out with and what activities they do. And a 10 year old should not be hanging out with 16 year olds and going to movies and doing things. I mean, I know we all want our kids to socialize post pandemic right now, but we still have to do it in an age appropriate way. And one of the things that I set out to do in my kids community was to say, this is what's age appropriate and this is not. And I I think I helped with my daughter's peers. I'm sure there were kids doing other things that she didn't hang out with. But I think as parents, we all have the right to say, this is not a socially appropriate activity for this age. And you could do that when you're that age. So for parents who are worried because their kids are developing early, a lot of the downstream effects on their psychological development or their medical risk because they do medically risky behaviors is actually, again, a social determinant of health that you do have power over if you treat your kid the age they are, not the age they look. Hey, it's Cara. We all know puberty isn't always easy. One of the trickiest pieces of the puberty puzzle is boobs. When will I get them? Why are they so tender? And why does every bra out there seem to pull, push, pad, itch, scratch, or be so flimsy it doesn't do a thing. That's where Umla comes in. It's a company that makes puberty comfortable, a company I founded with my friend Julie. When our own daughters began the puberty journey, we couldn't find a decent starter bra anywhere, so we made one. It fits perfectly whether boobs are just starting to bud or they've been growing for a few years. We call it the Umbra. And it's game-changing. The Umbra is made from buttery cotton that feels like second skin, ridiculously soft, and so comfortable you'll forget you're wearing anything at all. Umbra's one-of-a-kind support comes from its patented layered design that creates gentle compression without any tight binding, which also means it doesn't need any bulky, awkward pads because it's built to seamlessly hide nipples and protect against those dreaded ouch moments throughout the day. 
our daughters and their friends are done with puberty, but they still love and wear their umbras. It's why we say that the umbra may be your first bra, but it will definitely be your favorite bra. Come say hi, look around, and find your umbra, plus lots of other puberty info at myoomla.com. That's M-Y-O-O-M-L-A.com. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is factors ready to eat meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky and I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, magnesium breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, magnesium breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at buyoptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. Cara, my kids love Magic Spoon cereal. And even though it's cereal, they actually love it as a homework snack. The variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And fruity is the favorite flavor in my house. Now, this pack has zero grams of sugar, between 13 and 14 grams of protein, and between four and five grams of net carbs per serving. 
It's made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and it's high in protein, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So a great choice, Vanessa. You can go to magicspoon.com slash puberty to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our, you guessed it, promo code puberty at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them. Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. Hey, it's Patrick Starr. I'm coming straight to you with my very own podcast. Say yes to the guest. I'll be hanging out with some of my fiercest friends and spilling some serious tea on business, beauty, and being a boss ass bitch. With me, baby, you'll never know what will happen. Find Yes to the Guest on Apple Podcasts or anywhere where podcasts are played. Start streaming and downloading now. And don't forget to subscribe because every Monday we're going in. We got so much to chat about. So turn it up and say yes to the guest. Yes. Can we talk about some of the other environmental, because I consider that an environmental social determinant. Can we talk about some of the other environmental social determinants, whether it's water quality, air quality, things that might be solvable in a slightly different way, maybe through legislation or changing our behavior. Cara, before we move into that, I just want to underline something that Louise said about treating your child. The age they look. Yeah. They are still chronologically a nine-year-old, an 11-year-old, a 13-year-old, even though through our socialized perspective, they look like a 12, 16, 18-year-old. So parent the child that according to their age, not according to the way they look. And in addition to that, by talking to your kid about what's happening to their bodies, right? You can say, hey, I know that you like look like some older kids. I'm wondering how it feels to look a lot older than your friends. Like, Let's talk about what's happening to your body. Let's talk about how do you feel when, you know, people are talking about your growth and your development. And so not having it a taboo subject, just as you would about what activities are okay to participate in or not participating during, depending on their age. It's also about having this be an open conversation in your household so that their development isn't a secret, a mystery, something that's taboo, but it's rather part of the discussion so they can come to you and say, hey, it's really hard being a 12-year-old girl who looks 16 or it's hard being a 14-year-old boy who looks 19. I don't like how people treat me because of that. Yeah, I think having these discussions are really important. Sometimes you can dovetail it with a trip to the doctor. And so I always joke that being in the car is better because you're not having direct, you know, parallel is better than looking at each other. It's too intense when you're making eye contact or you're going for a walk and you can say, hey, I know you went to see Dr. Pediatrician last week and they told me development's typical for an older kid. And I'm wondering if you noticed that and do you want to talk about it? And do you feel like you look older than the other kids? Is that a problem for you? I think it is really good to have these conversations. And we had a whole chapter in the book 
talk about. This is not a talk. This is a conversation that you have over years and years. And if your kid knows that they can come to you to talk about vaginal discharge or body odor or erections, then they're going to know that you're the parent they come to when they need to talk about birth control or alcohol or vaping. And you have to be open and show that you can have this conversation in a neutral way. Even if inside you're like, ah, you got to have that poker face and just be kind of stick to the facts. And if you don't, and if you screw that up, you can do a do-over. You can say to your kid an hour or a day or a week later, I got that so wrong. Here's how I wish I had reacted because this is really how I felt. So for parents who have had those opportunities and feel that they've blown those opportunities, you can always take that opportunity back. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a journey that you're on together. Totally. Okay. So now let's just quickly tick through a couple of the environmental levers Mm -hmm. so that parents can understand if there are things beyond choosing certain foods to keep Mm -hmm. in your house, Mm -hmm. what things can they do to Mm -hmm. hopefully slow the march of puberty? Not that they have to. So I'd like to talk about yeah food and then a psychological environment. So in terms of food, we talked about if you can give your kids food that looks like where it came from, uh, how it was grown. But we do have parents talking about organic. The issue with the food supply is probably not hormones in milk, for example, or hormones in meat. The hormone that's specifically used um, in dairy is growth hormone. And growth hormone is actually broken down in your intestines. So we don't think growth hormone has anything to do with it. Growth hormone actually also doesn't have anything to do with puberty. It has something to do with growth. But what's more interesting is the theory behind the antibiotics in the food supply. So animals are given antibiotics to make them grow faster, develop faster, go through reproductive maturity faster, and get fat faster. Sound familiar? So the concern is that those are not filtered out. There's a threshold, but we don't know if that threshold is actually the threshold we need it to be. And if your antibiotics below that threshold, your milk or your meat can go to market. The problem is if someone's exposed to a little bit of antibiotic every single day, multiple times a day, is that a problem? As opposed to, I've got an ear infection, I need uh, antibiotics. That's different. If you have an, an infection, you take a short course of antibiotics, you need that. The issue is this chronic low-grade use of antibiotics in the meat supply. So what we recommend is if you have the option of making your meat-based or your animal-based products antibiotic-free, that is healthier. And most of those are labeled organic. It's not the organics per se for that. It's what else they're given in that process. So I think for those people who can afford to buy locally organic raised food, it's also better for the environment. And it's better for the environment because they're usually smaller farms and they don't have factory farming techniques. So there's many ethical and environmental reasons that add into why you should do that if you can afford it. The fruits and the vegetables, we don't know if pesticides affect puberty. We do know from other studies that we've been involved in, for example, a longitudinal study from Salinas, which is a, the breadbasket of California. There's a st- another study out of UC Berkeley that I helped with a little bit. And they were looking at like, neurocognitive changes through pesticides and changes in all sorts of things. The puberty aspect was very small. And they um, did amazing studies on that. And it really did show pesticides were bad for kids' neurocognitive development. So if you have the option to buy organic vegetables, I think it's an ethical an ethical choice to help the food workers and the farms and everybody. And it may also help delay their puberty. So buy organic if you can, and it may or may not help your puberty, but it's going to help a lot of other things. 
And in terms of pesticide load, butter and oil as well, right? Because the pesticides like to stick to the fats. Yeah. And so if you can buy oils that you can source that way, then yes, Good I think luck. if you have that choice, I know. I mean, yeah. there are really, exp- like, I know there's a local farm here that, that uses that, you know, if you know that it's from the local farm that raised, does the milk that you drink, then you can get that butter, but yeah. Louise, in counterpoint to that, I may be misremembering, but in the book, I believe that you say that even in the Inuit communities that they're seeing earlier onset of... yeah puberty and that it may be also just like the airborne chemicals in our globe. Can you talk a little bit about that? We don't know. I think that's the problem. It's so hard to study chemicals because you can't take one group of kids and expose them to one chemical and take another group and expose them to another chemical. We're all in this like... I don't want to say toxic waste dump. I don't want to say that, but you know, we're all in a a soup of many chemicals. And what's also important is the timing. So when we look at exposure to chemicals, we look at so many factors. It's not just the chemical, it's the dose. And the dose is determined by the route of entry. So is the route of entry through your skin? So for example, sunscreens, I'm going to talk about that in a sec, is the route of entry through your mouth into your intestines? Is the route of entry through your mouth and nose into your lungs? is the route of entry other ways? Is the route of entry visual into your brain because of screens? So we can't isolate any particular chemical and we can't go nuts doing this. The one thing that I did change early on for my own kids was sunscreen because I live in California and there were chemicals that are now being phased out that were in high use in sunscreens that probably did affect puberty and that the girls in California had higher rates in their blood because we were using more of those compared to the girls in New York or Ohio. So I recommend the physical blocking of sun rather than the chemical blocking of sun. And the physical blocking of sun means ideally sun shirts, because those rule out the, both the aging and the cancer causing and effects of sun, and you don't need to use chemicals. And if not, then I would use a physical blocker like a thick titanium or zinc oxide. I would not use the chemical sunscreens. The good thing is the state of Hawaii has banned some of the bad sunscreens because they were bad for the reefs. And what's bad for the reefs is bad for the children. So a lot of sunscreens now are going to the physical and they used to be expensive, but you can walk into any big box store now and buy a lot of really safe sunscreens. And the way that I look at whether it's sunscreen safe. I do this is I use the environmental working groups website um, and they have an app. And I have literally been caught by people I know standing in the aisle of the local drugstore. Like, is this a three or is this a seven on the EWG? And so a big shout out to Think Dirty and the EWG websites. So if families want to know what products to use in their houses. I would definitely look at that. Here's one shout out to some interesting products that are completely natural that people may have in their house, just to show you how confusing this is. Lavender and tea tree oil. So there are several studies now showing that boys who used um, hair pomades with this combination had breast development pre-pubertally. And Vanessa, you spoke about boys getting breast development as part of puberty, but then they got worked up because these kids were younger and they were pre-pubertal, but in that like fourth grade age where boys start doing things to their hair and they had breast development that went away when they stopped using this pomade. And when they looked at the hair pomade in the lab, it stimulated the estrogen receptors. So I do say natural is not necessarily safe. And I really recommend not using lavender or tea tree oil products in your young kids. If you're postmenopausal, bring it on but not in kids. And that speaks to the timing, the window susceptibility of when you're using these products. So it may not be the same for you and your kids. Okay. Soy is a really fun one. So we know that women who grew up in 
countries where there's a lot of soy intake have the lowest risk of breast cancer. And it's not genetic. When those women move to America and the next generation develops American eating habits, they normalize to the local population's breast cancer risk. And one of the mediating factors is early soy intake. So we also found this, that early soy intake for girls was protective. And it's probably because your body downregulates the receptors because soy can mimic estrogen and your body kind of gets used to the estrogen and then it changes the way that it works. In boys, we don't have the data yet. So I can't, we can't say as much about soy in boys, but we haven't seen any negative effects in boys. So does this explain why there are entire countries that use soy as their primary protein source and they are not seeing estrogenizing impacts because the kids are exposed young and so the receptors are getting downregulated a little bit? That and that they're not using the same evil farming practices we use here, and they don't necessarily eat as much um, animal-based products. We do know that the more plant-based you can eat, it's the healthier for a number of reasons, and puberty is one of them. Although I have vegans in my practice who go through puberty early, you know, there's a Venn diagram of all sorts of risks. That is one of the risks. So yeah, I think it is a healthier source than any other non-meat sources of protein are healthy. Are there studies being done about the impact of soy on boys and puberty? Because I sort of, through osmosis, had absorbed that my boys shouldn't be having a lot of soy earlier on, that it was contributing to, you know, affecting their puberty. So yes, there are studies going on and I agree it's the amount. So my son used to love tofu with soy sauce. I don't know why. And he always wanted to eat tofu with soy sauce. So we had a limit that you could have it three days a week. (laughs) like, because he would eat like a whole package of tofu. Right. And I loved that he was getting the calcium from the tofu and the protein. And I love that. And so he's like, mommy, it's Wednesday. I haven't had tofu since Sunday. I'm like, oh my God, I'm such a San Francisco mom. That is so San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it's a moderation. I don't think you should eat anything every day. It's all about balance and moderation, whether it's soy or milk or candy, everything in moderation. Let's talk a little bit about boys apart from estrogen and soy. And just looking at the path of boy puberty, it really has paralleled the path of girl puberty, right? So in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, Tanner did his famous studies and documented that girls entered puberty earlier than boys, but he was looking at girls entering puberty between 10 and a half and 11, and boys, they were 11, 11 and a half. You know, then Marsha Herman Giddens came along in the late 90s. She found that the girl trend was a full year earlier. You came along between 2005, 2010, documented, no, it's a whole year earlier than that. And then the studies started coming out on boys showing, yep, they're entering puberty earlier as well. It's less visible. Can you speak to what it means, what it looks like, what parents of boys should be thinking about? Yeah, I, for both genders, I joke that the first sign of puberty is slamming doors. <laughs> 100%. Not a joke. <laughs> so the psychological effects that you may see in your kid is going to be the same, whether it's a girl or a boy. You might see increased moodiness. You might see more emotional ability or anger outbursts in both boys and girls. I think right now the overlay is that a pandemic turns out can do that to you too. And we're gonna, I want to get back to what the pandemic is doing to puberty, by the way. So for boys, for girls, the first sign of puberty is breast development. And you can see that through a t-shirt, bathing suit, those flimsy tank tops, like right there, the whole world can see. For boys, the first sign of true puberty, as Cara said earlier, is not pubic hair or underarm hair. It's testicular enlargement and penis growing. 
And most people shouldn't be seeing that. So boys get to hide their puberty until they're well into puberty. They're having a growth spurt, but nobody's aware of it until the voice cracking. Well, it turns out voice cracking is probably the boy equivalent of getting your first period. And there's the core because nobody actually sees it, hopefully. So th- think about how late in puberty that is. And so, and then the hair growth comes kind of at the end of puberty and zits and all that for boys. So boys get to hide their puberty for a lot longer. Boys also go through puberty later. I, I, yes, it's shifting earlier, but boy puberty starts at least a year later than girl puberty. So even if it's early, we're starting basically early middle school or late elementary school, not middle of elementary school for girls. So it's not as scary. I also think there's a whole thing around girl sexuality being scary and people conflate puberty and sexuality. And one of the things that I was on a mission to do was to separate puberty ed and sex ed because kids go through puberty way before they're having like sexuality and kids who are late pubertal developers can enter sexuality. So the two are not necessarily completely correlated. For boys, they are closer timed, but they're all older. So they have more prefrontal cortex development and the parents are more ready. So having your boys start puberty in the early side is not as scary for parents and therefore society. And it's also hidden. So I think boys kind of get away a little bit easier, but I'm not a boy. And maybe a boy would tell me that I'm different, that it's still really hard. So Louise, can we dive into that, the conflation of puberty and sexuality? You brought up a few really important sort of social and emotional issues that I want us to get into. One is the you know, that a girl, a girl going through puberty earlier also means in adults' minds that she's necessarily going to be that also sexually active earlier. So I want to, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about people's fear of their daughter's sexual being in a way that they don't fear their boy's sexual being. And I want to talk about how we as adults can help people separate in their minds a kid's physical development from their kind of sexual activity. So you start wherever you want. And Kara, if you want to kind of add to that list of like social impact stuff, but I I really want to get into it because I know for so many people, and you mentioned this earlier in the podcast, when they notice that their daughters are beginning to go through puberty, they freak out. It is scary and I want to get into why that is and how we can help families and people caring for these kids not to feel so scared and teasing apart these two aspects of sexuality versus puberty, I think is one way to do it. So you start wherever you want, but I want to put this on the table. That's exactly why we wrote the book, because I really wanted to reassure people that just because you're going through puberty early doesn't mean this pathway to all sorts of scary things that people think about. So I think it's really important that people remember that puberty is a biological process that we put social factors on top of. People have been going through puberty since there've been people. Modern adolescence has really emerged in the last 70 to 100 years. So the social aspects of adolescence are very different than the biological aspects of puberty. They are linked because they're linked in time. But you go through adolescence, even kids who have really delayed puberty go through adolescence. So adolescence is the risk-taking, the pushing boundaries, the awesomeness when they call you on everything and they question you. And I love working with teens, right? Puberty is the biological process. So when you see your seven-year-old girl starting breast buds, you can go to the pediatrician. We we really need to make sure there isn't anything else going on and we need to look at the pace. And I want to get back to that because of the pandemic. The pace of puberty is really important to have a physician following it, not to have the parents feeling the breast buds or checking the testicles. That should be a medical professional. 
And then you talk about it. You've talked about other things with your kid. You taught them how to wipe their butt. I mean, there's many books out there, including Kara's, that really break this down. What I do love about the, the Care and Keeping series is that they they put together lice, brushing teeth, underarm hair, and periods in a way that's so non-intimidating. And I talk to parents about, for example, teaching your kid to wash under their arms. Like, let's just break this down into hygiene, okay? Brushing your teeth, washing under your arms. Brushing your teeth isn't scary. It's way more painful. Cavities? Yeah, I mean, like, why isn't that taboo? So really just remembering this is biology. Just break it down to biology and have dads talk to girls if they can. But a lot of the time, people feel more comfortable talking to the same gender kid. But we don't always have that choice depending on the structure of the family. So if you're not comfortable, find someone else that is. So if you have some trauma and you cannot do this, then your job as a parent is to find the auntie or uncle who can talk about it or the pediatrician and the social worker who can. And break it down. It's biology. It's hygiene. But the biological aspect, try and think about puberty itself as a biological aspect. The sexuality is what, kids do get sexual thoughts as their hormones are going up. Boys especially, they have wet dreams, which are associated with sexual thoughts related with their erections that come in the morning because testosterone is peaking at that time of day. The reason they have erections in the morning is because they have testosterone at that time. But girls have those feelings too, but that happens a little bit later on. And that's also kind of biologic. And you can teach kids that this is okay. And if they have sexual urges, they masturbate in their bedroom, right? Just like you poop in the bathroom, you masturbate in your bedroom. It's just not that big a deal. Or you help them change their sheets. The biggest thing you can do as a parent for your son is to teach him how to put their sheets in the laundry in the morning. And if the sheets are in the laundry in the morning, you do not comment, you do not question, you move them into the dryer later in the day, you put them back on the bed. Like just normalize it. Like if they wet their bed, you wouldn't shame them, I hope. Same thing. So I think breaking it down to the biological and normalizing it and the sexual feelings do come with the hormones, but that's much later, much, much later. So why is that? Because we see that boys, and you mentioned this earlier, that boys, puberty and like sexual identity and, and sexual feelings are in chronologically more aligned than girls who are now kind of developing at, you know, seven, eight, nine. And then- well, yeah, but- I think it's important for us to go back to the original comment, which is we see girl puberty for so many more years that girls, we think girls have been in it for so much longer before they become sexually inclined. And here are boys who have been in puberty for so many years, but none of us have noticed it because it's all happening under the underpants. And so we think it's wham, bam, their voice changes, they start growing a fuzzy mustache and they're having sexual thoughts. It's all happening at once. We have forgotten about the prior two or three years. Correct. Correct. So for example, seventh grade boys, they change from joking about farting and pooping to joking about erections and, and penis jokes and all that. Yeah. Those seventh grade boys are 13. Most of them have been in puberty for two to three years, but we didn't know it right? The girls are getting their periods then, but so we've been seeing their puberty for three years. They all kind of get that like six, that middle school stuff, but they've all been in puberty for a while already. We just didn't know it with the boys. There's also not the cult. It's okay for boys to talk about boners and masturbating and all of that, but it's not okay for girls to talk about their clitorises and masturbating. And so there's, it's also like their sexuality is more visible. Their active conversation about it is more out in the open. It's incredible. When I teach in schools, when I started way back when, there was so much gender divide in the teaching, which I actually think is frankly a big mistake. I think everyone should learn about everyone's bodies and puberty 
I don't think is very gendered. I think there are different parts. And beyond that, you know, it's about transformation. And so there's a way to build empathy and common understanding if you teach everyone in the same room. Some benefits to splitting, but I remember talking to the man who taught the boy section year in and year out. And he would talk about how there's so much more to talk about for girls than for boys. And I used to think this is so odd. No, there's not. It's, you know, but Vanessa, to your point, you know, that's what ends up getting talked about because everyone feels like, well, periods are some real meaty, you know, there's real meat there to discuss in the classroom. And, you know, boys have so many pieces to the transformation of their bodies and their brains that can be addressed. And somehow it has gotten boiled down to wet dreams and boners. And this is, you know, it's an unfortunate simplification, oversimplification, and then it gets socially reinforced. And that's what we see in our homes. And on one of the problems for boys now is the ready, the easy access to porn start starting in very young age, especially this past year. And so what we actually see is body dysmorphia in boys, where boys are getting referred to specialists because they think they have right. small penises because mm. they're comparing themselves to porn stars. And I have sometimes had to kick parents out of the room and say, where are you getting this idea that your mm-hmm. penis is small? Because I just measured it and it's completely average. And then I have to come out and say it, are you watching porn? And they don't answer. And I just say, listen, porn stars are like the 99th percentile. But then, I mean, that leads to then boys wanting six packs and this ridiculous bodies. So it's interesting that now we used to think of all this body image stuff only with girls. And it's the great equalizer of the internet. It does lead to boys now. There There is a focus on boys, I think, because of that. But I do want to bring that up. Porn for boys. Watching porn itself may be kind of a, a normal, again, I don't know how to use that word, part of puberty, but it's not healthy. And there are boys that can get really obsessed with it. And then they end up with health problems. So that would be an environmental trigger that I, not that yeah. it causes puberty, but causes problems. Social determinant of health is yeah. porn exposure. I mean, so that's so interesting. It's an amazing thing. I have two detailed questions to ask about physical changes. And then I want to get into puberty and pandemic because we keep kind of circling around that. But my quick questions before we get there are about hair growth and acne. So Mm -hmm. starting with hair growth, you talk a lot in the new puberty and in interviews about how hair growth should not be mistaken for puberty. Can you do your amazing Louise very straightforward, simple explanation for parents and for the people who are raising kids, why if you see underarm hair or pubic hair, you should not just assume your kid's in puberty. Thank you for bringing that up. It's such an important point because those are the visible signs, for example, in boys. Hair, sexual hair, under the arms, around the pubic area, and maybe even a little bit um, up the tummy, that is mediated or produced by the adrenal glands. Totally separate set of glands that work in conjunction with your gonads, your ovaries, or your testicles. The adrenals can wake up really early. And the adrenals can especially wake up early in kids with certain conditions and certain exposures, such as kids who are overweight, kids whose parents had diabetes, kids whose moms had diabetes when they were pregnant with them. And then there are probably some chemical exposures that make your adrenal glands wake up early and give you body odor, underarm hair, pubic hair, and acne. When you go through puberty, which true puberty starts in the brain and tells your gonads, ovaries, testicles, to make estrogen or testosterone, that can also wake up the adrenals. But a lot of times the adrenal glands wake up earlier. So body odor and hair can start in kids with no hormone problems at six, especially in African-American girls 
and especially in girls or boys with exposures to other things. That is not puberty. And that's the night, it's kind of a gift in a weird way, because if your kid's armpits stink, you get to start having discussions about hygiene. And I used to give a little talk about how, you know, washing your armpits every morning when you brush your teeth. And then that again, demystifies some of these body changes. And so I think it's important. Parents remember kids are used to their bodies changing all the time. They have teeth fall out. Like if that happened to us, we'd freak out. That happens to them at school. They cheer. So you can then normalize this hair development as just another thing that happens when you grow up without calling it puberty because it's technically pubarchy or adrenarchy. It's not true puberty. And if it happens really rapidly or much younger than age six, it could be a sign of a medical problem. So the answer is always take your kid to the pediatrician to get them checked out. But if your pediatrician reassures you, please understand where that's coming from. So I just want to underline that if you're seeing hair in your on your six-year-old in the armpits or around the testicles or the penis or the vulva, you're saying, Louise, it's not necessarily puberty, but you still want to see your medical provider and make sure there's not something else going on. Is that a fair characterization? I think... If you're sick under age seven, I would. There were very rare hormone problems. One in 4,000 kids has a hormone imbalance that can lead to that progressing rapidly and other health problems. And it's just good to know about it. It's not super scary if you didn't get diagnosed at birth, but it's like knowledge is power. And then even more rarely, like one in 100,000, you can have a tumor. Literally one in 100,000. I don't want to scare our listeners, but it's just, if you're worried, if you're worried about anything with your kid, the answer is always check with a medical professional and don't doctor Google it. Um, 100%. Okay. So then you touched on acne and I I do want to go to acne for a moment because in my experience over the past couple of decades, I have noticed not just more acne, but more fulminant acne where, you know, when we were growing up, everyone was afraid of getting zits, but it was the rare kid who had really dramatic cystic acne or had, you know, 500 pimples pop up all over their face at once. That is not an outlier situation anymore. What is going on? I don't know. And that's related to androgens and the adrenal hormones, right? So acne is similar to hair. There's many causes of acne, but certainly having higher levels of androgens or testosterone or adrenal hormones can make it worse. There are some pesticides which do seem to affect the adrenal glands and insulin resistance can also, that's that, you know, eating high fructose corn syrup and yucky food and not exercising. But I see it in, again, the vegan athletes here in the Bay Area. So I do not understand it. I think the dermatological community needs to do a lot more research. I think we are now getting more and more medications and I feel like it's a medication spiral. Part of me wishes we could destigmatize acne and just say, oh, you got acne, but kids, maybe the masks have helped. They've made acne worse, but then kids are covering up. But I think with that Zoom thing and they were seeing themselves, there was a lot more dysmorphia, body kind of hatred about that. So I don't know the answer to that, but I do worry that it could be pesticide related because some of the pesticides are related to stimulating adrenal glands, but I don't know. I know I want that study so badly. Let's talk about pandemic. Let's go there and tell us your observations about puberty and pandemic and what we can learn. So first of all, a little background information, because we never got to this social determinant of health. And our book spends half of the book talking about social determinants of puberty. We have known for a long time that low-grade chronic stress can promote the pubertal onset, particularly in girls. We know that high-grade stress does not. So high-grade stress seems to shut your body down. So for example, 
concentration camp victims or cancer treatment. That shuts off your puberty. Your body goes, ah, we're in true crisis. We do not have the energy to put into puberty. We're shutting down reproduction. We're shutting down growth. We're going to go to survival. But it turns out there's a sweet spot between, it's not even a sweet spot, a dirty spot between horrible stress and regular life of chronic low-grade stress. And we know that kids that grew up in war-ravaged areas where they're not directly bombed, but around them is damage. Or kids who grew up, for example, Tanner's kids in the orphanages may have been the extreme stress, but the rest of the kids in England, okay? Or this is really sad data, but data that's come out again and again, kids who grew up without their biological father. Even if they have a stepfather that steps in and is their true father, the body knows that's not their biological father. Those girls in particular all go through puberty earlier. And Tanner used to talk about this as a little bit, like he noticed girls from, quote, broken homes went through puberty earlier. Well, what is that about? Well, we think the theory is it's um, an evolutionary hypothesis that if your body perceives stress, but it still has resources, so you're not starving, then it says, oh, there's stress. I need to quickly reproduce so that I can have progeny and you know selfish gene kind of thing. Well, that's been documented again and again in our data. Dr. Deerdorf's done a lot of data on that. There's a lot in the psychological literature about this. So flash forward to 2021. I used to see girls that got their period before the cutoff, which is nine and three quarters, maybe twice a year. And I am now seeing a girl like that once a week. So I want to do some research at that with my institution and we can need to look into that. But we are seeing so many girls with true premature menarche. That's a medical term for early onset of periods. And these girls did not start puberty early. So I'm hearing girls who started their breast development at age eight and got their period at age nine. And two years ago, I would have told anybody like that's, that's, that's it. in our study of 1200 girls, I had to look at all this, the all the girls that supposedly had their periods earlier and not a single one of those 1200 actually had premature menarche. And now in my practice, I'm seeing it so often. So we don't know why, but I think that these poor girls' brains, without them even being conscious of it, are perceiving the stress of the world around them. And it turns out sitting in your room looking at a computer screen, not necessarily the computer screen itself, but that stress of not being able to get out of your house and that claustrophobia and not having the stress-relieving activities of play and socialization is doing something to their brain. And it is really interesting. And that's dot, dot, dot to be continued, but it's definitely something we're seeing that in our study, which again was the only study really to look at girls longitudinally, the, the quickest puberty was 18 months. And that was a girl who started late. So in general, the earlier you start, the longer your puberty. So if you start early, you might take four years between breast onset and period. If you start late, you get 18 months. And I don't want to freak people out, but I have been seeing girls who started at the average age and then still went rapidly. So my advice to our listeners is if you're concerned about your girl rapidly going, like she's eight and doesn't just have breast buds, but all of a sudden looks like, look in Cara's book, you'll see what I mean, but is it stage three or four? Please bring her into the pediatrician because there's ways that we can check it. And I'm suddenly using a lot more medicines to slow down puberty. And I'm having my book kind of flashed in front of my face by some parents because I am so anti-medication in the new puberty. And I talk about supporting your girl and they don't need block puberty blockers and they're totally healthy. And all of a sudden now I, the person who's been out there publicly saying, do not slow down to girls puberty if it's normal and prescribing way more of this medication that I ever used to. So Louise, is there research? Are you doing research on the effects of pandemic, chronic stress, weight gain, other kind of social determinants of health on girls puberty, or is someone conducting that 
research? Because what you're sharing with us is like personal anecdotal and you are the expert. You are who people are coming to with this concern. Are we going to be able to get some data across a large swath of American children or children in other countries about this? I hope so. The part of us kind of needs to wait a little bit because some of these girls are still going to be getting their periods this year as they come out. So part of it is a little early to really do that. I'm hoping that our institution, which is powered to do this because of the sheer numbers of people and our electronic medical record, I can't speak to other institutions, but I can tell you that there's more and more research coming out. There's been two papers that came out this month, just looking at body mass index in two different large studies across America. I don't know about international yet, but those papers have just come out and showing the increase in weight gain. So you know how we joke about the COVID-19 in adults? Well, that's happening in kids too. We're all gaining. 19 pounds, the kids are really increasing their weight gain as well, especially the overweight kids. It's accelerated. So I think we will be going back now to look at this data. Maybe at the end of this calendar year, we're going to look at premature menarche in 2021 because you have to look at the pandemic, the late effects. So that will be starting to happen. I can't speak. I don't, people don't always talk about what research they're doing until they've published it. I'm sort of breaking our secret by telling people, but I just want this research to be done. I'm not holding on to it myself. So that the secret's out. I hope that it's going to be done. And I'm hoping that we're going to be able to, to, to do that in our institution. And it sounds like there are then two parallel drivers of this that may be interacting. One being the weight gain we certainly have seen during the pandemic. And the second being this chronic stress related to isolation and worries related to living through a pandemic, perhaps losing family members, losing jobs, all the the stressors. And so those two streams may flow together to be driving what you're describing. You're going to undoubtedly get a zillion questions about the vaccine and what the vaccine's impact is on puberty. Because if I have already gotten a zillion questions and I have, you're going to get many more. Can you preview for us what you think is going to be borne out in that data? I first of all want to say that the vaccines do not cause sterility. I could go on and on for another hour about that. Can you define sterility for our audience, Louise? Yeah, so people are worried about the vaccine affecting testicle size this week. Male fertility, sperm, there's all these different rumors that come out and they're all different. So that's how you know they're conspiracy because they're not actually grounded in science. If the vaccine or COVID itself, coronavirus disease, affected your fertility, then all those women who were pregnant would have miscarried. All the babies that were born to women after they were pregnant I mean, after they had coronavirus would have not been born. And all these women who had all these healthcare workers who had the vaccine last year wouldn't be giving birth. Also, there's no mechanism between the spike protein and the placenta. There's this idea that the placenta has a spike protein. Well, lots of things have these proteins, but just because it's one protein does not mean they're actually related. That's a misunderstanding of basic immunology. So first of all, the vaccine does not prevent fertility. Okay, moving on to puberty. Similarly, the mechanism just isn't there to think about how a vaccine which stimulates your immune system would affect your pubertal development. The connection between the immune system and puberty is if you're overwhelmingly sick, like you're dying of tuberculosis, you're malnourished, you're not going to go through puberty. Getting a vaccine, any vaccine, think of all the vaccines. Kids need nine vaccines in California to start seventh grade when they're going into puberty or they're in the middle of puberty. They don't affect your pubertal development. There are enough case reports of women saying their periods have changed after the vaccine that I believe we have to trust those women. And I can tell you that periods, as in your monthly cycle, can change at the drop of a hat. So you can be stressed 
medical students, they always joke about how their first year on the wards, they like never got their periods. They shouldn't joke about that. There's something called prep school amenorrhea, which was girls at boarding schools didn't get their periods from September to May because they were stressed. And we see that in girls still in high achieving schools that like, you know, in our communities. So stress itself can definitely affect your period. So if you are someone who's had this year of anxiety and you go and get your coronavirus vaccine and you're sick for two days and then you get another one three weeks later and you're stressed, that itself, like the psychological stress could affect your period, but that's not affecting your fertility. That's that month. You got a period earlier late and then maybe it takes a couple months to regulate it. But we have to remember that stress itself, the effects of stress on the brain affect your periods, not the actual coronavirus vaccine. And we have to compare apples to apples. So if we're worried about what the vaccine does to the body, which I am not, and you are not, but others may be, if you're going to worry about that, you have to then compare it to what being infected with coronavirus will do to the body. And we're gathering data on that as well. And let me say that for every side effect that has been documented with a vaccine, you see that side effect in a multiple with the infection. So if you look at myocarditis, which is inflammation of the muscle around the heart in especially teenage and young 20-something boys who got vaccine, and then you compare it with myocarditis cases in people who got coronavirus infection, the case number for people who actually got coronavirus infection is far higher. Your chance of having inflammation in your heart muscle, multiple higher if you get infected with the actual virus. So to anyone who is trying to sort through this, I think we can help you begin to put that to rest. There's going to be a lot of, there's going to be a lot of drama especially on social media around this. And I think people should excuse themselves from that conversation. And I think it's come up with other vaccines. So when HPV came out, HPV is a cancer preventing vaccine. When my kids got it, I told them, you want a vaccine to prevent cancer? They're like, mom, why is this a controversy? And then I actually told them why and that they're my kids. So, you know, that's how I talked to them. And they were like, mom, that's nuts. So every vaccine that comes out, someone comes up with something to freak out about girls' sexuality or girls' puberty. We'll go back to that loop. And I think it's just, when that keeps coming up, even though it's a totally different vaccine, you have to wonder where this is coming from. I totally, I couldn't agree more. It's like when you want to stir up a society, you go straight for female sexuality to rile people up. So I want to wrap with, we wrap up every episode, Louise, with a practical puberty piece of advice. But what I'm going to ask you to do before we each go around our little Zoom squares and do that, I want to summarize for our listeners because we are a place that is providing constructive, optimistic, empowering advice around complicated topics in puberty and adolescence. And this conversation, we covered a lot of complicated, confusing ground that is critical for parents to understand, but it also has a lot of I don't knows and a lot of areas where research is still going on. Maybe research hasn't even been funded yet. And what I love about your work is you're willing to say, hey, I'm not sure, or we're not sure yet, or here's where I can be definitive. So what I would love for you to do before we give our kind of final takeaways from the conversation is to help our parents understand what it is about this process that is kind of changed, right? It's earlier, but that's quote unquote, expected? And what about this process, they should go seek some medical advice. So for instance, 
if your child is under the age of X and they're noticing breast development or penis growth or testicle growth. If your child is exhibiting signs of Y and Z, that's a time to talk to a medical provider. A few pieces of advice like that so that people walk away saying, hey, this is really complex, but I feel empowered to support my kid in the best way possible. Absolutely. And in fact, we wrote a whole chapter about that in the book. And there's a flow sheet that we put in the book that we then use at my institution to even teach our colleagues medically about that because the flow sheet's super helpful. So if they want to see a flow sheet, get the book. It's right there. For girls, I would say if your girl is having breast development before age seven, seven and a half, they should see their pediatrician right away. If you're at any time concerned about your kid's breast development, they should see their pediatrician because that pediatrician has enough knowledge to know, is this stage two? Is this stage four? But in general, before seven, I would say warrants a a sooner appointment, whereas otherwise it could probably wait till the next scheduled visit. For pubic hair, I use the cutoff like six and a half um, ish. Again, though, acne, if you're concerned, we are seeing more kids really young with acne. And then you see the pediatrician so they can give you advice and your kid may need to hear that from the pediatrician. So some of this stuff is just so your kid can have that conversation with the pediatrician, even if we're not going to pathologize it. For boys, the cutoff is still nine for testicular enlargement. So hopefully people are getting back to taking their kids in for checkups. And I want to put a plug in for that. During the pandemic, we did not see kids for checkups for a while. And we're picking up a whole host of problems now that were delayed. And I do want to say to people, it's safe now. Your pediatrician, your family practice doc's office is safe. Please, and they're in California, they're all mandated to be vaccinated in most places. So that's a lot safer than the grocery store. So if you're in any doubt at all, take your kid in. Video visit does not cut it for puberty and you can't check height and weight. So go do your in-person visit. But Generally, six and a half for pubic hair for either gender, seven for breast development for girls, nine for testicles for boys. And again, if you really want to get this laid out, look in, look in the book and there's a nice flow sheet there. And by the book, you mean the new puberty. We will put that in the, in the show notes. I can't recommend it highly enough. As someone who works in puberty, who works with girls, it is Literally, Cara mentioned earlier, I refer to it on a weekly, if not a daily basis. So I'm going to use that as your wrap up, Louise, which is if you haven't gotten your kids checkup, go get your kids checkup. It is time. And if you're noticing a really rapid puberty, Louise, you mentioned earlier in girls, like if they seem to be going from zero to 60 in their puberty and you've had your checkup, you can go back to your pediatrician. I think people feel embarrassed kind of going back to their pediatricians too often, or some people feel embarrassed. But like if you're noticing that and your daughter's puberty is going from zero to 60 between eight and nine, it's a time to make a call and, and go in and see them. Car, do you want to add your practical puberty? Yeah, it, it takes off where you left, which is I think so many people are worried that they are a burden to their doctor when they reach out and either want a piece of advice or want to be seen. And I have said for so many years, the burden is when you don't go in. But I want everyone to hear what Louise is saying because I'm not seeing patients anymore in the office. So I can say that till I'm blue in the face, but Louise is. And she is saying the exact same thing, which is it is not an onerous burden on the doctor. It is the right thing for you, for your kid, Anyone who has 
healthcare questions should be communicating with the person who is their primary caregiver. And you start with the primary. So you heard Louise say 50 times during this podcast, you start with your pediatrician. You don't fast track it to the pediatric endocrinologist or the dermatologist or whoever it is that Dr. Google has told you to go see. Start with your primary care provider for one, because they can help you determine whether what you're seeing is worthy of a next level visit. Number two is that they really are your gatekeeper, that their job is to stay connected with the subspecialist. So if you've gone around them and gone to a subspecialist without them being involved in the loop, they cannot help you going forward. And number three is so many of these issues are multifactorial. You may need to see Louise for your endocrine issues and a therapist for some of the social stressors. And you may not know that you need the therapist for the social stressors. And so use your doctor, use your primary care physician who may be a pediatrician, maybe a family practice doctor, maybe a nurse practitioner, whoever is your primary care person, that is your gatekeeper. Use them, use them. Louise, I want you to have the final word as people finish this episode empowered with more knowledge. What's one piece of advice you want them to walk away with after this very stressful time raising children during what is even ordinarily stressful years in their family's life? What's one piece of advice you want them to to walk away with? Everybody goes through puberty. Every adult has been through puberty. Every child will go through puberty. And the more we can demystify the process and support kids while they go through that process of tremendous physical and neurocognitive changes, by talking to them and supporting them, the better everything will be. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Louise. We are really grateful to have had you on and to share all of your knowledge and wisdom with with our audience. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. You're the best. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at The Puberty Podcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out myoomla.com or dynamogirl.com. Bye. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card.
Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com